It's December 21st, three days away from Christmas in 1975. Snow has covered the streets in Vienna. The famous Viennese Christmas markets in front of the old city hall are sending out holiday vibes and tunes. When five men and one woman enter a building. There was one Austrian policeman standing at the entrance. One of uh, the members of the group said, like, uh, good morning to the officer. And he, uh, of course, uh, greeted him back, but he made no attempt to search the guys who were entering the building. Their clothing is a bit shabby. Is the OPEC meeting still on? Asks one of the men, a group of journalists standing in the lobby. The answer is yes. And so they continue making their way to the staircase. They're fully armed and mean business. This is no bank robbery, no raid of a jewelry store. This will go down in history as one of the biggest terrorist attacks of the decade. They got up to the uh, second floor and then they burst into the, uh, into the rooms. They herded people into the conference room. Over 60 people, in fact. Three are killed right at the beginning. Many are wounded. The conference room grows dead silent when the hostages are divided into groups of liberals and semi-liberals, criminals and neutrals. One of the men with a machine gun, appearing to be the leader of the group, says to the negotiator on the phone, Tell them I'm from Venezuela and my name is Carlos. Tell them I am the famous Carlos. And the two-day hostage drama starts. The building we're talking about is the OPEC headquarters in Vienna. OPEC being the organization of petroleum-exporting countries. Yes, oil producers. And on December 21st in 1975, they were holding their semi-annual meeting. So all the ministers, the top guys in the oil-making and exporting countries, mainly from Arab oil-rich countries, plus Iran and Venezuela, are in that one room. Never before and never afterwards uh, have so many uh, high-ranking politicians been in the custody of a terrorist. Eleven oil ministers of the top world oil exporters from Libya and Algeria, but also from Saudi Arabia and Iraq, they're all in that one room, now terrified what is to come next. This attack was no whim of a crazy terrorist. It was executed by that guy, Carlos, and five other terrorists, organized by a group of militant Palestinians around a guy called Wadi Haddad, and commissioned by no other than the Libyan leader himself, Muammar Gaddafi. Who wanted to get uh, oil prices uh, higher and to pressure Iran and Saudi Arabia, especially because those uh, nations were at that time the champions of a cheap oil. No one saw this attack coming, because all the sponsors of international terrorism were sitting in that one room. No one could have predicted that one fraction of the OPEC would turn against the other at their friendly holiday meeting. After tense negotiations and three dead men, Austrian hostages are released, and the rest, including 11 oil ministers, board a plane. Their first stop is in Algiers. Carlos negotiates with local politicians and five oil ministers and over 30 hostages are released. 
Then they fly over to Tripoli, but don't get the reception they wanted. More hostages are let go, and it's back to Algiers. Then he went into negotiations with uh, the Algerian foreign minister, and then it, um, it, they, they reached the conclusion that uh, there would be a, a huge ransom money paid and all of the hostages uh, released. And that was the end of the affair. All the oil ministers walk free. And Carlos walks away from this stint, allegedly a very wealthy man. So did it work out for them? Did the oil prices go up afterwards? Yeah, at the end of the 1970s, oil prices moved up, but then there was a collapse in the 1980s. Yeah, so in, uh, it didn't really pay out for Gaddafi. Yeah? There was an immense amount of media coverage at that time. You could compare it actually to 9-11s because the whole event was filmed and Carlos was moving around with his trench coat and that black beret, for example, yeah? And he uh, commandeered around the hostages with his uh, machine gun. So this was kind of very, uh, this sent a very strong message, of course. And it was immediately picked up by the world media. And Carlos soon became the jackal and a terrorist celebrity. Welcome to the secret struggle for Cold War dominance. My name is Katerina Urban-Richterova. We're super happy to be launching season two of this podcast that takes us to the Cold War era and uncovers stories of military services, espionage and politics that have been kept secret until now. In series one, we traveled online to bring you stories of Cold War conflict from places you would not expect them at. And in this season, we want to do more of that and other stuff. Explore relationships between intelligence services and countries, terrorists and citizens. Look at the ways they operated and at the human stories behind these operations. Today, we'll look at a phenomenon that helped turn up the heat on the Cold War. One that is very well known today and surprisingly was very present during the Cold War as well. Yes, it's terrorism. Today we'll talk about the most feared man of the 1970s and 80s. During the Cold War he was probably the most uh, recognizable or well-known terrorist. About his image and abilities. He tries to uh, hit an LL flight. Him and his accomplice actually accidentally hit a Yugoslav plane, not the LL plane. We'll talk fascination by terrorism. People projected so much into him. He uh, almost got superhuman abilities in some kind of ways. Yeah. We'll debunk myths about the East created by the West. It's actually the Soviet Union that's running people like Carlos the Jackal. We'll look at a secret police of a small country that tried all kinds of tricks on terrorists. The STB also devised a trick to kind of force or motivate Carlos to leave the territory. And we'll even talk about hotels 
and their role in Cold War terrorism. He arrived at the hotel at the same time when the International Olympic Committee was having a session there. Really? And this was about five years after the massacre. Yes, we have a cool show ahead of us, so let's go. Season 2, Episode 1. Fear, Terror and Dirty Tricks. Welcome to The Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance. My name is Katarina Urban-Richterova. Yes, yeah, it's fine now. <laughs> and this is the guy who knows so much about the OPEC rate. Well, I'm Thomas Riegler. I'm a historian and I'm um, into researching uh, Austria's confrontation with international terrorism. Thomas is Associated Researcher of the Austrian Center for Intelligence, Propaganda and Security Studies at the Graz University. Right now he's in Austria, Central Europe, and I'm only an hour away from him in Slovakia. But because it's early 2021 and COVID is still around, we're recording this the safe way, online. Uh, the problem is that the Wi-Fi is uh, very shaky. Thomas has been researching terrorism for 20 years now and claims that the interesting part for him lies not in the actual attacks, but in the response terrorism gets from politicians and institutions what they do, how they react, and prevent terrorism. What is it like researching um, a person who is a terrorist and a murderer for you? I guess I'm, I'm a bit fascinated by the personality, by the ambivalence of, of him and everything. For me, it's the fascinating point is actually the gap between the image and the real person. Because it's, um, in the end, he's so small yeah, and insignificant. Do you get bad dreams sometimes when you do this kind of research? Well, uh, official documents, the language is too um, formalistic, I guess, for you to get um, any kind of um, bad feelings from that. It, it reads itself so much detached, actually, from the actual event. It's uh, When you see, for example, the reenacted scenes in the, in the TV, then it's much more, um, affects you much more, actually. Thomas actually lives in Vienna, so the events we spoke about hit really close to home for him. In terms of the whole uh, era of Cold War, would you say terrorism was a frequent phenomenon? Well, terrorism was a kind of covert policy at that time because many uh, states like Libya and Syria, for example, and Iraq, of course, they kind of used uh, terrorist groups to um, get their agenda and uh, especially to um, reach foreign policy goals by unofficial means. Yeah, So it was kind of a, a secret policy. Surprisingly, terrorism has been around for a long time, reaching all the way back to the Roman Empire and the Russian monarchy. But during the Cold War, uh, we start seeing something new. We start seeing a, an internationalized version of terrorism. And this is another expert I'll be talking to today. Thanks to commercial travel and increased ways of basically people moving around, terrorists or people who want to use terrorist tactics like don't have to basically engage in terrorism in their hometown or within their own country, but uh, they can easily travel around the continent and uh, attack targets in other countries. And that's what we're seeing here during the Cold War. Do you want to do you want to tell me your name? Hi, my name is Dr. Daniela Richterova. I'm a lecturer in intelligence studies. Makes me want to make a joke like, so you think you're intelligent? Do you get that a lot? Oh, uh, yes, more often than you can imagine. <laughs> Let's try another one. Okay, so what's the most frequent joke 
that intelligence uh, study specialists and academics receive? Yeah, so I often get asked whether I'm a spy. And uh, of course, uh, because I'm a woman, I often get asked whether I'm a honey trap. Uh, it's always quite odd. And it creates a very odd atmosphere when people ask you this. Like, I, I guess if I were a spy or a honey trap, I wouldn't tell you. And also, I think probably the worst cover you can have as a spy or a honey trap is to be a spy academic. Like, seriously, be an engineer, be a... A journalist. A journalist. <laughs> uh, exactly. Be a podcast producer. Like, there's so many other ways to go about this. But it's a common it's a common shortcut that people make. But yeah, I guess I've kind of gotten used to it by now. And I know we've said this on the podcast, but we I think we should mention it once again. You're my sister. That's a huge disclaimer for the listeners of this podcast, meaning um, not only that I will be very strict with questions towards you because that's what, uh, you know, family members do, but also that we sound alike. Do you get that a lot that you sound like me? After the first episode we did together, I got about 15 uh, messages from friends and colleagues saying you and your sister have the same voice. The reason why we invited Daniela to the podcast today is because, just like Thomas, she has spent over eight years researching terrorism and dug out some surprising information on Carlos the Jackal. But yeah, let's get to that in a bit. For now, let's go back to terrorism, which is not a new phenomenon during the Cold War. By the way, this is me, Katerina, speaking now. Cold War terrorism is really international in its goals, also in its means, because a lot of these uh, attacks actually take place in airplanes. And one of the reasons why they are so quote-unquote popular is that they generate a lot of media attention. It was a very effective means of, um, of getting things uh, done or listened to your demands, right? Well, I would say that it was definitely very effective in terms of visibility. And moreover, now that so many households had a TV, they could bring this real-life drama to everyone's home. This is when Carlos the Jackal, the Bin Laden of the Cold War era, walks onto the scene with his Che Guevara-like beret that he bought just a few days before the OPEC raid, actually, his thick glasses, trench coat, and a cool smirk on his face. He's the perfect villain. Carlos the Jackal is a really interesting um, character. During the Cold War, he was probably the most uh, recognizable or well-known terrorist. Uh, he was a Venezuelan man. He came from a family of an affluent Marxist, a so-called champagne Marxist. Just uh, for curiosity's sake, his full name is Ilich Ramirez Sanchez. And the first names of his two uh, brothers are uh, Vladimir and Lenin. So you can guess uh, who his father admired. It would have been certain Vladimir Ilich Lenin. studied in Moscow. He lived also uh, a long time in London and then he went on to support the Palestinian struggle there and um, he got immediately accepted into the PLFP. The PLFP being the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And they gave him also this uh, nom de guerre, uh, Carlos. Carlos trains in Jordan and then goes back to Europe, laying low for a while. But then, in 1972, he starts setting up safe houses, gathering forged documents and putting together a list of possible targets. Mm -hmm. 
And then in 1973, he really has his first kind of terrorist baptism, where he stages his first terrorist attack against the chairman of Marks and Spencer, uh, who was uh, a certain Joseph Edward Saif, very affluent Jewish businessman. Carlos uh, goes to his house and actually shoots him in the face, but Saif uh, kind of miraculously survives this. He then goes on to try to attack an Israeli bank in London. That doesn't really work out. Another unsuccessful attempt there. Then he tries to uh, hit an El Al flight at a Parisian airport. That also doesn't really work out. One of those times, um, him and his accomplice actually accidentally hit a Yugoslav plane, not the El Al plane. So he has a, a couple of uh, unsuccessful attempts at terrorist attacks in the early 70s. So all this time, Carlos is not very successful or even strategic in his activities. He's conducted a few terrorist attacks, but isn't causing too much of a stir. There's no real hunt for him, and he's not known. But then comes the year 1975, when two events change his fate. In June uh, 1975, what happens is that the French authorities arrest a Lebanese man who is clearly connected somehow to the PFLP, right, to Carlos's um, kind of mother organization. Uh, basically, he does tell them that he is there to meet a killer. And, um, okay, so the French say, that's fine, thanks for telling us this, but who is this guy? Where, where is he? How will we find him? And so as they press this Lebanese informer more and more, he tells them, uh, okay, I can lead you to a flat where I know Carlos sometimes spends time in. So they go over to the Latin Quarter in Paris, to a flat that is close to the Sorbonne University. The informer stays in the car while two cops get out. One is wearing a police uniform, the other one is undercover. They knock on the door. I think they're not really expecting anything in particular, but they're quite surprised with, with what they uh, come across there. There's basically a party going on in this flat. Um, so they kind of break up the party and they start questioning all the people there. There's a number of women and a number of Carlos's um, mostly Latin American friends. And they also start questioning Carlos. And he kind of dismissively tries to shake off their uh, questions. And so gradually the atmosphere there, you can imagine, gets a bit tense. Carlos says he needs to go to the bathroom, where he's storing a gun. He conceals it behind his back and returns to the police officers. Since the police officers aren't really getting anywhere with him, they go downstairs and they get the Lebanese informer. And they basically try to confront Carlos with this informer who's saying, you know, this this person we're, who's in the flat is our hitman. And when they all come upstairs and Carlos basically takes a glimpse at this uh, Lebanese guy who he knows very well and who he's worked with in the past, he basically snaps and starts shooting. And he shoots these police officers and the informer into their face and necks from very close distance, actually. And uh, three of them die on the spot and one of the French policemen is uh, left uh, heavily wounded. So basically, it's a massacre. By killing police officers ruthlessly like that, Carlos crosses the line that instantly makes him enemy number one of France. The second event that changes his fate occurs only a few months later, and it's that grand OPEC hostage drama in which Carlos kidnaps oil ministers. 
And now, the media is watching him. After the OPEC stint, Carlos is fired by the Palestinians because he did not fulfill his orders and did not kill some of the ministers as instructed. Moreover, there is talk of the fact that Carlos took a large sum of the ransom money for himself. I've heard 20, 40, even 50 million dollars, but of course these are all allegations. However, he probably did walk away from this unfulfilled mission a wealthy man. And then, once again, he's laying low. And during the next couple of years, he kind of really has to, what I would term as, reinvent himself. Stay a terrorist, or become an accountant, or a teacher. Yeah, he decides for the first one. And in about three years, Carlos re-emerges with his own terrorist group, spreading around fear and terror. A new era for Carlos is here. At the end of the 70s, there was a, for example, there was a Mexican uh, thriller made uh, about him uh, called Carlos the Terrorist, which had actually nothing to do with him. This was a fantastic impersonation of him. Yeah. So the, there was a gap between the, the Carlos in the media and what Carlos really did. People projected so much into him. He uh, almost got superhuman abilities in some kind of ways. Yeah. He loved uh, having this lavish lifestyle where, you know, you're drinking this and eating that and buying crystal and perhaps buying a weapon. He just loved kind of being this larger-than-life figure. He was kind of um, a guy who really actually loved his job. Yeah? He was uh, really up to this secret business and, and he also enjoyed um, being in these situations. Uh, it's it's a, a very rare example of, of somebody who was basically fearless to some degree. Yeah? But also there were some, of course, dark aspects to him as well. His paranoia, for example, he uh, kind of executed members of his group. He suspected them of being informers and he also mistreated his wife and he never got close to his daughter. So he was a very... Um, dark personality, I guess. Yeah. When you see the media reports from the 1970s, he uh, looks like uh, yeah, the playboy of, of international terrorism, but he never was that kind of person. In the 1970s, it was Libya, Iraq and Yemen who Carlos would call friends. Who is behind this guy now? As Carlos is attacking Western countries, the first and only answer is the Kremlin. Carlos and his group must be working for the Soviets and the whole Eastern Bloc. The 70s and in the 80s, this is the height of the Cold War, right? In the early 1980s, the Reagan administration comes to power. Reagan labels the Soviet Union as the quote-unquote empire of evil, right? So Reagan and the people around him are trying to frame the Soviet Union for terrorism. So they're trying to persuade the public that the, it's actually the Soviet Union that's running people like Carlos the Jackal. So there is this whole... Um, air of, of politicization around the issue of terrorism. And that's why I think for a very long time, 
many people who have written books about Carlos and about other terrorists of the 70s and 80s have kind of also assumed that uh, he was a tool of the Kremlin or that he was on the KGB's payroll. There were all, all kinds of uh, theories. And like on one hand, you can't blame these guys because Carlos went around the world and was telling everyone that he was a Marxist, okay? He was telling everyone how um, he supported the Soviet Union and how he wanted equality and prosperity for everyone. And also, until the end of the Cold War, he actually goes around and he tells people, oh, I'm getting so much support from the Soviet Union. You know, they're very happy with me and that kind of stuff. So it's also about the kind of myth that Carlos built around himself. He wants to be seen as someone who is supported by a big empire like the Soviet Union. And this is where my sister, Dr. Daniela Richterova, comes in, rummaging through thousands of documents of the former Czechoslovak secret police, the STB, that kept tabs on local people as well as foreigners, that was running agents as well as operations. About a decade ago, their archive became open to the public and is one of the most liberal in the world. So my sister knocked on their doors, read, read, and then read a bit more to learn that, yeah, it's not so clear-cut. Yes, the countries who were part of the Eastern Bloc, like the USSR, Bulgaria, Poland, East Germany, Hungary or Czechoslovakia, did share the same values, worldview. They were pro-communist and even had the same friends and enemies. However, we now know that in many topics and areas they were trying to carve out their own space and do their own thing. Like when it came to their attitude towards some terrorists. Now, let's not make the same mistake of generalizing. Many of the secret archives have not been opened yet, like those of the KGB, the Soviet secret police. So we have no idea what their deal and relationship with terrorists like Carlos the Jackal was. So let's just stick to what we know for a fact. And that, thanks to declassified secret files, is the former Czechoslovakia, a country in the heart of Europe with its capital Prague. Was Czechoslovakia a sponsor or a champion of Carlos the Jackal? What was their relationship like? Carlos the Jackal starts visiting Czechoslovakia in 1978, so that's three years after the big OPEC raid. And he keeps coming back. And not just to check out the popular tourist sites, but he would stay for weeks at a time. In fact, at some point, he calls the country just the right place for conducting his kind of business. Geographically, it was a really good place for the group to, to be because uh, Czechoslovakia was in the very heart of Europe. So if he wanted to attack Paris, if he wanted to attack Madrid or uh, The Hague, it was much closer to get there from Prague than it was from Beirut. So yeah. Like a standard businessman, he would set up meetings in Prague to arrange business deals and develop partnerships, with the only exception that his business was illegal and lethal. He would meet with uh, the Iraqi ambassador. The Iraqi ambassador would regularly lend the group uh, uh, cars with diplomatic license plates, would also um, provide the group with safe houses, so 
apartments where they could meet and uh, either discuss stuff amongst themselves or meet with other people. We also know that he met with Yemeni diplomats and also with uh, Syrian diplomats. We know he met with Abu Daoud, who was uh, supposedly the main architect of um, the Munich Olympic Games uh, massacre of Israeli athletes in 1972. We know that they met for coffee and then they went up into Carlos's room. And how do we know all of this? Well, it's all revealed in the formerly secret files of the Czechoslovak State Security, the STB. They kept pretty detailed records of of everything, really. Mind you, these are internal documents, so people don't hesitate to be frank. The STB thinks that Carlos is stuck up, unprofessional, volatile, and that he is a fake Marxist. In fact, they're not sure what his revolutionary principles or values that he's fighting for are, or if he has any. Prague usually, in most cases, didn't know he was coming to their territory. Carlos always traveled on fake documents, under fake names, under fake nationalities. So usually the country's state security, they usually find out from their informers in um, in one of the big hotels in Prague where Carlos always stayed. When Prague actually did find out and was told that Carlos had arrived in Czechoslovakia, they were usually quite shocked and always very unhappy. And this is where my research kind of contradicts what we knew before, where most um, people who wrote about Carlos assumed that the Central Eastern European countries welcomed him with with open arms or invited him over. Uh, What I found uh, was that this was indeed not true. So what do you do when you have a a person who is a terrorist who uh, pretends like he's your friend, but you, you don't want him to be your friend? What do you do when you have him on your territory when you're so powerful as the STB does, the secret police? So what they do in the first phase, the first couple of months um, after uh, Carlos starts visiting Prague mostly, they start surveilling him. We have beautiful photos, surveillance photos of Carlos and his accomplices and his girlfriend shopping for crystal and for other things around Prague and going for walks. So Prague is keeping taps on them uh, through these official surveillance teams. They also activate what they call um, their Arab Agentura, so a network of agents who work at these embassies or, or work at the hotel or work in other places where Carlos the Jackal spends time. They inquire about what they're doing in Prague. They go drinking with him, that kind of stuff. And these people also report back to the STB. Was he aware of the fact that his sort of business, this is terrorist business, illegal stuff, is being monitored by a secret police of a country that he has no ties to, maybe some sort of liking, but definitely not a love relationship. Does he know of that? So I would say that overall, yes, he might not have known all the details. uh, But um, basically, we know we also know from his stay in other Central Eastern European countries that um, he was not only aware of some of the surveillance Put on him, but he also got very angry at them sometimes. So we know that in in uh, Budapest, Hungary, he once uh, got so angry at a guy who was following him that he attacked the guy, put a gun to his head, and actually dragged him to the closest police station, saying, "This gentleman is following me." Um, we also know that uh, while in Prague, uh, when Carlos and his accomplices were going to a safe house to an apartment somewhere in downtown Prague. 
Carlos sent his uh, two of his accomplices to actually get rid of the STB officer who was surveilling them. So they confronted this officer on a staircase and basically told him to bugger off. Um, so it's not only that Carlos was aware, but at times he would actually uh, confront the people who were following him. It sounds like he didn't have too much respect or didn't fear the state security of Czechoslovakia, right? Yeah, I mean, no, not, not at all. He did not seem like someone who was afraid of the Czechoslovaks or any other intelligence services in, in Central Eastern Europe, who he probably was afraid of, were the French. Why? Why did he fear the French so much? So first of all, he's got a long history with the French, right? So he conducts these um, various terrorist attacks on their territory. He kills their policemen. He then uh, goes on to actually stage a number of attacks in the early 1980s because his girlfriend is arrested and incarcerated in France uh, due to possession of explosives. So he practically declares war on France in the early 80s. And uh, you know, France very quickly returns the favor and their president at the time, François Mitterrand, he authorizes his special services to kill Carlos the Jackal. It's, it's very interesting, you know, because obviously the two of us are from the former Czechoslovakia. Prague was the capital of former Czechoslovakia. It's very, actually a surreal uh, image to picture a terrorist. Carlos meeting other terrorists like uh, you mentioned Abu Daoud who was in fact behind the Munich Olympic Village Massacre to meet just like that you know for coffee or for drink in a city where you live. Was it that strange for you to find out these things when you were reading these documents? Well no it was fascinating and you know I spent a lot of time in Prague and walking al along the Vltava River and walking along the street where Carlos the Jackal would go and go for a walk with his girlfriend or go for a walk with some of his accomplices, uh, walked around the Intercontinental Hotel where he spent a lot of time. And, and then I also imagined other people who stayed in the hotel. It was a very popular hotel during communism. For instance, we know that um, Ivana Trump, uh, President Trump's first wife, wanted to organize a big birthday party there during one of her visits to Prague. She was, of course, and is, of course, Czech. And then there were other dignitaries who visited that hotel. Um, actually, at around the time when the hotel was visited by Abu Daoud, the supposed um, Munich Olympics uh, massacre architect, he arrived at the hotel at the same time when the International Olympic Committee was having a session there. Really? And this was about five years after the massacre. Wow, if those walls could talk. I'm not sure they can talk, but they can definitely listen. Because we know that the STB had bugs in a number of these um, hotel rooms, like permanent surveillance equipment installed in a number of these rooms. And that when Carlos came to Prague, the manager of the hotel always kind of tried to direct him to those rooms and try to accommodate him in the rooms where there was the surveillance equipment. What is it like uh, researching a terrorist uh, and a murderer for you? You know, for me, I've had to give it a minute to think about the fact whether I want to be creating podcasts about uh, this kind of guy. How about you? 
Did you have to uh, think about that? Mm, I guess my interest in this developed kind of incrementally. So it wasn't like a moment when I had to confront my conscience and decide whether I was going to write uh, articles and hence popularize people who, who killed innocent people around the world. But basically when I started looking into uh, Czechoslovakia's relationship with the Middle East, with the PLO and with other violent non-state actors, and I started going through these declassified files of the STB, Carlos was popping up everywhere. So uh, it was swiftly apparent that uh, my story was not just going to be about the Middle East and the PLO and Prague, it was going to be about much more than that, and that it was going to be about Prague's relationship with violent non-state actors. And it also quickly became apparent that actually this wasn't going to be a story about Carlos the Jackal. I wasn't going to write a book about Carlos the Jackal. I was going to use him as a straw man, as a symbol of how states behaved when they're confronted with new threats. And uh, it was clear that he was the main concern for uh, Czechoslovak state security um, with respect to terrorism. That he was the guy who basically was their enfant terrible. He was their biggest worry. And it was because of him that uh, Czechoslovakia actually started building up counterterrorism departments in its state security. Carlos never settled down in Czechoslovakia, meaning he didn't have a permanent home here. He did settle in the neighboring Hungary. However, he did try to make friends with Czechoslovakia so that he could have here a space to conduct his business and find new friends that can support him or shelter him or give him arms. So he is appealing to Czechoslovakia, to the fact that they both are communists, anti-imperialists, that all he wants is to be left alone. He says, I'm not here to attack anyone. I'm not here to cause trouble. I will not uh, stage any terrorist attacks on Czechoslovak territory. But still, Prague is terrified of him. He's a known global terrorist, one that is also often in the media, that is known to take credit even for things he didn't do, which gives him that perfect villain legend. One that meets other terrorists in Prague, one who is very explosive, fearless and unpredictable. They, meaning the Czechoslovak State Police and Interior Ministry, they want to protect their territory and protect their reputation. So they feel like they need to get rid of Carlos the Jackal. So they should just arrest him and ship him off to Venezuela, right? Yeah, they don't do that. Kicking him out of Czechoslovakia could mean a serious mistake. For one, allegedly Carlos is working with the KGB, as Carlos himself likes to scream out. But Czechoslovakia asked Moscow about this numerous times, with no reply. So he might be working with or for the Soviets, or just be friends with them? Czechoslovakia is not sure, but as it is a part of the Eastern Bloc, the Czechoslovaks can't risk going against Mother Russia. Also, Carlos is such a hothead that expelling him from the country could mean serious payback. So, at this point, Czechoslovakia is surveilling Carlos every time he comes to the country. They have their informers on standby. However, after a few months, they decide Carlos is such a danger to them that they need to step up their game. And so they put Carlos and all his gang on the persona non grata list. They refused to give 
in visas. We know of a specific instance where Carlos and his girlfriend come and request uh, visas uh, at the Czechoslovak embassy in uh, Bulgaria, and they're not granted these visas. Now, Carlos gets really angry, and he knows in the early 80s that he's no longer welcome in Prague. And this, plus a diplomatic intervention, meaning the Czechoslovaks call Carlos's French diplomats that he should rather stay away, it works. Carlos stops coming to Czechoslovakia. And the SCV, the Czechoslovak Secret Service, closed his file. But then, all of a sudden, in 1986, there's a phone call from the Intercontinental Hotel, from an informer. Carlos is back in Czechoslovakia. He doesn't come alone. He comes with his pregnant uh, uh, girlfriend, Magdalena Kopp. She's heavily pregnant. And with one of his sidekicks, his deputy, Johannes Weinrich. As usual, they check into the Intercontinental um, Hotel. And at this stage, you know, it's the mid-80s and this is a bit too much. Uh, Carlos the Jackal by this time has committed... 10 more attacks than, than he had the last time he was in. So the the Czechoslovakians are really not happy about having him there. But again, you know, he's still the same volatile Carlos, so they don't want to kick him out. They don't want to confront him. So they come up with a trick. Yes, the Czechoslovak secret police, the one that Carlos the Jackal had so little respect for, decided to play a more daring game. First, once again, they send in diplomats. A senior Czechoslovak diplomat who I actually spoke to, he calls in those Middle Eastern ambassadors again, and he tells the Syrian ambassador that Carlos has to leave Czechoslovakia immediately. Go and tell this to uh, Carlos the Jackal. But they knew this wouldn't be enough to scare the most feared terrorist in the world. So they came up with a little trick. A pretty daring trick. They sent two of their men to the Intercontinental. Now, these two men, he must have been so worried, by the way. These two men uh, went into Carlos's uh, room and they basically told him that the French special services knew about him and his pregnant wife uh, being in Prague and that they were trying to hunt him down and they were ready to kill him. However, Carlos doesn't believe the two Czechoslovak cops standing in his hotel room. So what happens next is that he engages in a very kind of temperamental phone call with uh, one of the Palestinian representatives. Carlos is also telling these STB guys that, you know, they're horrible and that they should give him support, that he's a Marxist and his usual threats and uh, quote-unquote pleas. Carlos is furious. Could it be, or is it a lie? How would the French get here, and would the Czechoslovaks allow them on their territory? There might be all sorts of doubts and holes in this plan, in this strict plan, but ultimately the French have the capability and they have the intent to kill Carlos uh, the Jackal, and he knows it. And so very quickly, Carlos and his two companions pack up and are escorted to the airport. And then fly off on the next flight to Moscow. 
And as far as we know, this is the last time that Carlos de Jaco uh, visited Czechoslovakia in June 1986. And this is where the story of the relationship between Carlos and Czechoslovakia ends. In 1994, Carlos is caught, for real, by the French, and is now in a top security prison for life, actually serving several life sentences. And this is the short, long story of the most feared, maybe overrated terrorist of the Cold War era and his relationship with the small Eastern Bloc Czechoslovakia. I've been told this is the point where people stop listening to the episode and never hear the fun nugget of wisdom we include after every episode. So this time, don't turn it off just yet and stick around for the fun bit at the end. Today's episode was based on the research of Dr. Thomas Riegler. Check out his article When Modern Terrorism Began, the OPEC hostage-taking of 1975. And also on the research of Dr. Daniela Rektorova. Her expert article is called The Anxious Host, Czechoslovakia and Carlos the Jackal. And she also has an upcoming book with Georgetown University Press on Prague's relationship with Carlos, the PLO and Abu Nidal. And in this episode, we also drew upon John Fulane's Jackal, the complete story of the legendary terrorist Carlos the Jackal. If you like our podcast and want more of it, find us on any of the popular podcasting platforms and hit the plus subscribe or add button so that you get the latest episode of the podcast as soon as it's out. Also, check us out on Twitter, we're at CWDominance, or on Facebook, we're under the name The Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance, and here we publish a lot of extra material that didn't make it into the podcast. This podcast is created and produced independently. Interviews, editing, sound design, and all the rest of it is done by me, Katarina Urban-Rektorova. Before we go, a huge thank you to Dr. Thomas Riegler and Dr. Daniela Rektorova for their extensive research, knowledge, and for finding the time to talk to me. And of course, thank you for listening to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. And to lighten things up a bit, at the end, here is our regular nugget of fun produced by history. We know where Carlos came from. Where did the nickname Jackal come from? Yeah, so basically Jackal was kind of an invention of the media and uh, specifically the British uh, newspaper, The Guardian. Because uh, after he killed those French policemen in 1975, that's basically when the hunt for Carlos begins. And when it begins, uh, these journalists from The Guardian, they get a call from someone in, in London. And this someone says, you know, I think this Carlos everyone is looking for. He used to stay in our flat and he left a lot of bags here. You might want to come and have a look. So these Guardian journalists go there and as they're literally looking through the bags uh, full of weapons of one of like the, the biggest terrorists that we've seen in during the Cold War. They notice that there's a copy of Frederick Forsyth's The Day of the Jackal on a bookcase right next to these bags. And I guess you could call it a creative license or, or whatever you may, but on the next day when they publish an article about Carlos, they assume that when Carlos was in this flat, he might have read Frederick Forsyth's novel. And so they coin the name Carlos the Jackal. 
And that nickname stuck with him for, for, well, until now. I wonder what Frederick Forsyth thinks about that. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? And this, of course, is Frederick Forsyth, great fiction writer, a former journalist, and, of course, author of thrillers, among them also The Day of the Jackal. What do you think about the fact that Elite Ramirez Sanchez has been using the nickname The Jackal for most of his career? Oh, that was a that was a canard. Yeah, no, he was a terrorist. Uh, he, uh, he had nothing to do with the jackal, of course. The original um, uh, jackal uh, was very British. Uh, he was a, an assassin. Um, had nothing to do with Carlos at all. But uh, Carlos stuck. Carlos the jackal stuck. And as, as so happens with the, the media, uh, once the thing sticks, it sticks like glue. So he became Carlos the Jackal. And then people began to think that that I had named the Jackal after him, the other way around. (laughs) He was given his name in 1974. I read my book in 1970. So I would like it if you know that it wasn't originally mentioned by me. (laughs) 